you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. If you'd like to join me in reading uh, Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and help me Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Andrew. And good morning. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm a pastor here at this church, City on a Hill. Uh, so glad to, to see you here this morning. I look forward to perhaps connecting with you afterwards or just to echo what Zach said. Love to, to get to know you a little bit more at Greenhouse coming up in a couple of weeks' time. But hey, before we start, I just thought I'd... Um, might have just ran out of the building. Take time to acknowledge uh, Zach, our new lead pastor. Uh, if you can hear me, I'll shout louder. Um, hey, um, you know, it's been a big week for him, as he said, big week um, for, for our church. But um, hey, I thought last Sunday was an excellent announcement if you were here. It was so encouraging seeing uh, the elders, uh, seeing the, the future church council, seeing our church uh, in unity. Uh, I love just the transparency about the process. I even learned stuff about the process last Sunday. Uh, Zach, if you're listening on the live stream uh, or out there, I love you, brother. Uh, I'm thankful for your servant heart and I'm confident 
I'm confident that you have my back and uh, I have yours. Our families, are, we're great friends. Uh, in fact, Sarah, um, my wife, on you know, the top of her favourites on her messenger thread, on her text thread, she's got me, but she's got Hannah next to her. And I think she actually texts Hannah more than me. Um, anyway, um, but hey, I'm looking forward to this new chapter of, of, our, of our church life, of, of our church family. Let's, you know, let's get behind uh, our brother Zach and his family. You know, let's not place unrealistic burdens upon him. Uh, as he said uh, this morning, uh, he's not Jesus. Jesus is the one who really is the true lead, lead pastor of our church. Um, you know, I'm confident that Zach will be a great leader, but he's human. Uh, he, like me, like all of us, will let each other down. Uh, he'll sometimes do things perhaps maybe a little different to how we'd expect. You know, those burdens, they belong to one man, Jesus. Jesus, and he is what we're on about at City on a Hill. We want to know the person of Jesus and make him known across Brisbane and beyond. Church, will you commit or recommit to his mission? Will you commit this year uh, to be part of Jesus' mission here with your time, with your energy, with your relationship, with your finances? That's the way uh, we, we welcome uh, Zach into this role, by committing to the mission of knowing Jesus and making him known. Uh, let me pray, uh, and then we'll get stuck into uh, this thinking about confession and Psalm 51 tonight, uh, this morning. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we, we do acknowledge you as a God who is holy, who is mighty, who is powerful, who made uh, the heavens and the earth with a word. And Lord, we stop and ponder ourselves and our own insignificance before you. And yet, uh, in your word, you said that you've created us in your image. In the person of Jesus, you became man and made, us, made it possible for us to be right with you. And yet, Lord, we don't deserve that. Uh, we are like beggars begging for a piece of bread under the table, Lord. Lord, we thank you that in your word, uh, you give us something that nourishes more than bread, words of eternal life. And I pray this morning, I pray that you would comfort uh, the hearts of us who are troubled, but also would you trouble and challenge us who are being too comfortable. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd speak through me, speak through your word, and may we as a community uh, know you more as a result of this morning. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. I did not have relations with that woman. Who am I talking about? Bill Clinton. Back in 1998, those words were famously uttered after he was accused of having an, a, a, an affair with his intern, Monica Lewinsky. Now, later on, after he was confronted and exposed, he, Clinton did confess that, in fact, he did have an affair with Monica Lewinsky. In fact, lasted around 18 months. He says this, and have a listen to the tone and the, the self-justifying nature of his, of his confession. He said, while my answers were legally accurate, I did not volunteer information. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Miss Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in my judgment and a personal failure on my part, which I'm solely and completely responsible but I was misleading everyone about my personal failings. I was embarrassed and I wanted to keep it from my wife and daughter. And I didn't want the American people to know how I'd let them down. It was like I was living a nightmare. Seeing Hillary 
defend me, made me even more ashamed of what I had done. I was afraid I'd lose not, my, not only my marriage, but my daughter's love and respect as well. Guilt. There are few emotions in the human life that are stronger, that are more pervasive, more powerful than the emotion of guilt. Is there a moment in your life that you wish you could take back? Maybe not necessarily a big kind of Monica Lewinsky moment, but something you, you did, something you said, something you wish you'd said that you didn't do. An hour, a day, maybe indeed a relationship that you wish you could, you know, click undo upon. Now, as I've reflected on, on my life uh, this week, uh, there are many things that I wish I could have over again. Uh, times that I wish I'd spoken up and said something. Uh, times that wish I'd, wish I'd bitten my tongue and refrain from, from saying things and listening and trying to understand better. Times that I said things that were insensitive, uh, that where I wasn't present with people. Times where I just wasn't thinking. I hit send without reading the message or email. Wasted money here, lots of time there. And from the outset, perhaps I just want to say that maybe that there's times where I've hurt you. And I just want to say I'm really sorry. Uh, and I hope to uh, have the opportunity to, to apologize and to, to hear you um, and hear your story. And thinking back on, on my life, uh, there's a few moments in particular that bring about deep shame and remorse. There was a night out in the city when I was 18, drunk too much, and the night did not end well. Guilt. It's a powerful thing. We all have to face it. We all have to deal with it. Moments in life where we just want to hide, where we're confronted with that person that looks upon us in the mirror, ourselves. The question I want us to ponder this morning is this, how do I deal with guilt? How do I deal with guilt? Now, there's lots of different options out there for us, aren't there? Denial, blaming others, you know, giving mitigating circumstances that, that justify our behavior, that take the heat away from ourselves. Of course, there's ways of dealing with it, retail therapy, substances, getting sucked into the mindless vortex of the phone scroll. There's even religious responses, trying to, to do good works, to, to cover up, to atone for the wrong that you have committed. Friends, I want us to see that from this text and a few others this morning, that our guilt, in our guilt, confession is the gift, the grace that God gives us. It's a gift from God that helps us in our time of need. So the big thing I want us to see, the way we deal with guilt is confession. I want us this morning to, to see that there's a deeper issue going on. Ultimately, guilt, it's an issue of the heart. Uh, it's why in Psalm 51, as Andrew read, we see David cry out to God, create in me a clean heart, O God. This passage we're looking at this morning, it comes in response to David's guilt. It's a psalm, a song written by King David, the greatest king of Israel, a man who walked with God, a man who God said, he's a man after my own heart. What higher compliment can you have? The Lord of the universe declares upon you. And yet even David had the need for a renewed heart. 
And it's one of the, the few psalms we get with, which has a specific context, the backstory about, about why and how it was written. Now, if you have a Bible, really helpful to, to bring these along because it gives you these little bits. And this is different to a subheading, which was added by editors later. This is, this is an ancient inscription, perhaps even inspired. There's debate about the inspiration of it. But at least it's helpful about the context of, of, of the psalm. And it says this to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone in to Bathsheba. Uh, now, what happened? Well, let me just set the scene. You can read about this uh, later on this week in uh, one, so 2 Samuel 11 and 12. It was late one spring afternoon. Uh, Samuel says, when the time where kings would normally go to war, Bit of a clue what David was meant to be doing. And David's kind of just fuffing about, wasting time. He's kind of pacing up and down the roof without much, sorry, around, around his, his palace without much purpose. And he goes up onto the roof. His eyes begin scrolling where they shouldn't be. He sees a woman bathing. He says, she's beautiful. Who is that? He asks. I must know. I must get more information about her. I must be able to see her, see different angles of her. I must want to get more of her. He was told that her name is Bathsheba. And, but also that she's married. Married to, in fact, one of the key leaders in his army, Uriah the Hittite. She was out of bounds. You don't go there. And yet he asked one of his servants to send her over. What happens? He sleeps with her. We aren't really sure how consensual it is, but he's the king, so she can't really say no, and she becomes pregnant. David, he, he panics. This is not how I thought this would play out. I thought this would just be a bit of harmless fun. In his heart, he, he justified sin. He knew right and wrong. He was the guy who wrote most of the Psalms. He, he delighted after God's law, said his words were sweeter than honey from the honeycomb, and yet the heart's deceitful above all else. He justified his behavior. Maybe he thought, look, I've been busy kind of worshiping the Lord with my harp or writing songs or looking after God's people. Uh, I can afford to indulge. So what does he do? He tries to cover up. He asks for Uriah, General Uriah, I'll call him, to come back home from the battle. And so he sends Uriah home to be with his wife because, well, look, if you guys are together, maybe people won't put two and two together. They'll just assume you're the dad. He'll look less suspicious. But Uriah, great man of honor, says, no, no, there's a war going on. Uh, Sir, Lord, I cannot do that. And so he stays at the palace. David tries again. He gets Uriah drunk, thinking, oh, if I get him intoxicated, maybe then he won't be able to resist going home to his beautiful wife. But again, Uriah, a man of honor, he stubbornly refuses to go home. And so King David, a third time, a desperate act, what does he do? He has Uriah killed. But not in an obvious way, in a sneaky, underhanded way. He sends him back out to battle and sends him to the front line, to the close combat zone, into the trenches. And what he does is he tells the army to retreat leaving Uriah exposed to be slaughtered. Then what happens? Nathan, the prophet, he confronts David. What does he do? He tells him a parable about two men, a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man has lots of sheep. 
And the poor man has just this little lamb who's like a pet, kind of part of the family. And the rich man, what does he do? He stands and steals this lamb and has him kind of killed and slaughtered to, be, to feed the family. And David's like, that's terrible. How dare that man do that? We need to do something about it. Nathan says, you are that man. David, at this point, he realizes this cloud of guilt swallows him realizes the sin of what he's done. And it's that context that this psalm is written. And so this morning, as we continue our series looking at prayer, uh, we're looking at this passage, which is perhaps the most powerful, raw expression of confession between a man and a holy God. It's the way that David deals with guilt. And as we look through it, and look through in particular through the lens of Jesus, it's also how we too should be dealing with our guilt. We're going to see three things uh, this morning about confession and the restorative power it has. Firstly, confession restores us vertically with our God. Confession really is the starting point of becoming a Christian. A Christian is one who recognizes their need before God. They're in need of a Savior. This is the fundamental problem with the world, with humanity. It's not the biggest problem we're facing. It's not coronavirus or climate change or racism, injustice, abuse, poverty, corruption, even the pandemic of the bin chicken. As important as these things are, the fundamental problem with humanity is separation from God. See, without reconciliation with God, we are all stuffed. That's why David, after abusing his power, killing a soldier, covering up, says in verse 4, against you... And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, it's not that David hasn't sinned against others. Of course he has. But there's a primacy. There's an importance that the first and foremost thing he's done is sinned against God. All sin is first and foremost against God. Now, we don't always feel that because we don't always feel the effects of sinning against God. It's the other people. They're the things that we feel and then fear. It's others that that catch us out, that confront us, that are are affected by the dumb decisions that we make. But God knows. God sees. God hears. And it's God who sets the rules. Keep Psalm 51 open with me and have a look at the very first two verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Notice those first two words, have mercy. Mercy is when you deserve punishment, and yet you get off. It's like uh, in in a courtroom, uh, when you've got someone who's a criminal, someone who's guilty of something, they plead to the judge, have mercy. I know I deserve this, but please, can you use your power to to let me go, to give me another chance? That's the same image that we see David has done here. He knows he's stuffed up deeply. And some of you right now, you're thinking, well, I'm not that bad. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery and tried to cover it up. Now, it's so easy with, with sin to, to look at comparison, play that game, think, well, I'm not as bad as that. I haven't done anything that bad. 
you know, we kind of justify ourselves by, by looking down on other people's sin and mistakes uh, to make ourselves feel better. And in fact, some of you right now are thinking, oh, we're talking about confession, guilt. I'm glad that this person came, you know, giving him a nudge. Or like, oh, I wish that other person came. This would be a great sermon for them. No, no. We're talking to you today. We're talking to your heart. God has a message from his word to you. This passage shows and exposes our heart by showing us a deeper view of what sin is. In fact, in those first two verses alone, David uses three words to describe what sin is. Firstly, transgressions. Transgression is when uh, you cross over a barrier, a boundary that should not be crossed. It's doing the wrong thing. It's an act of rebellion, violating God's moral code. We all do that. We all do things that are wrong because God has said so. And we do it willingly. And we do it willingly. Maybe not in the moment, but, but we know that they're wrong. You know, God's law on one level is quite simple. Jesus says the entire law can be summed in this, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as yourself. How many of you have kept that this year? I haven't even kept that this morning with my kids you know, at the breakfast table. Like it's, it's hard. We, we, we stuff up all the time. The second word that God gives is iniquity. And, and this is the state of our heart. This is the very nature of our being. As Paul Tripp says, it's not just that we do wrong, but that we are wrong. And so David says, wash me thoroughly of my iniquity. Now, over the last couple of years, we've sort of gotten used to, to washing, uh, washing our hands, you know, kind of sanitizer. If anyone bought kind of sanitizer stocks a couple of years ago, they'd be doing okay. But, you know, remember, um, you know, we're trying to wash our hands, you know, with, with sanitizer to, to help spread, to help uh, prevent the spread of, of COVID. But once you have the disease, you know, sanitizer, it doesn't, it doesn't get rid of it, right? You can't kind of scrub your hands to get rid of it. You can't ingest it, you know, drink that or bleach or whatever to kind of get rid of it, right? You're, you're infected. Iniquity is that state. We've been infected. And we've been infected from birth, even before. Have a look at verse 5. David says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or as the NIV translates, I think a little bit more helpfully to understand, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This is our default status. We aren't kind of born neutral and it's only society or conditions or whatever that makes us bad. We are all born unclean. We're all selfish, rebellious, have this nature that is in opposition to God, wanting to make much of ourselves, to ignore God and to not live as how he would have us live. Now, this isn't as this isn't that we are as evil as we possibly could be. And it's not saying that some people aren't worse than others, but this is that every part of us has been corrupted. The Bible is clear that we are born like this. It's a disease that we cannot cure. So transgression, crossing over the boundaries, rebellion, equity, this state of, of uncleanness, and thirdly, the word sin itself. 
or in Hebrew, chata, which, which means kind of falling short. It's like the, the image of an archer aiming at a target. And it's not as though they miss the target. It's that they, they just keep falling short time and time again. They're incapable of nailing it, of living up to the standard that God has set us. The Bible says that all, all fall short of the glory of God. This problem of sin, it's our rebellion, it's our condition, our failures to be obedient. It's more than just kind of doing a few naughty things. I want us this morning to have a bigger view of what sin is. And God takes this seriously. In fact, Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. What we earn by living, by even being born into this nature of sin is death, judgment. That's the punishment that should be due to us. But there's good news. The good news that God gives us comes through confession. Paul says in Romans 10, chapter 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A Christian is one who believes in Jesus, that he really did rise from the dead so that we too can rise again. But a Christian doesn't just believe it up here and is silent about it. A Christian also confesses it with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, meaning that we aren't Lord. We aren't number one. We are under the authority of King Jesus. There's a beautiful simplicity to being a Christian. It's not about doing lots of religious things. It's about what's already being done. But confessing Jesus, Lord, it's easy to say on one level, but to say it from the heart, it's got implications. It's not just a bit of intellectual trivia that we can you know, pop away in our top pocket. We need to know who He is. We need to know what He wants from us and what it looks like to be in relationship with Him. So if we confess that Jesus is Lord, if we truly believe that, He's Lord of our life, we believe that God raised Him from the dead, we're justified, we're right with God. Why do we need to keep confessing? Isn't it just a kind of one and done thing? Well, yes, that initial confession does make us right with God, but confession's an ongoing work. Not that we continually need to be made more and more right with God, but it's the way we live out our vertical relationship with Him. To use analogy, let me explain. I've got, I've got two girls uh, that, are, that are next door, and I, I, believe, I believe sincerely that I will always love them regardless of what they do. Now, I can't promise that because I'm a sinful father. I'm not perfect, but I will always be their father. We will always have that relationship. However, when they sin, when they don't listen to me, uh, when they hit each other, when they draw on the walls, when they just do dumb stuff, get into mum's you know, lipstick, whatever. Like, I still love them, right? But it doesn't mean there isn't an issue between us. You know, there, there's some relational tension going on. Uh, if you're a Christian, God will always be your father. Your, perfectly, your perfect heavenly father. Way better than any dad you, you've had or can even imagine. And you will always be his child. However, when you sin, it grieves him. You're affecting your relationship with him, not your justification, not your standing. You're no less of a child. You aren't at risk of losing your salvation, your inheritance, the blessings that come from being a Christian, but you aren't living out this relationship with him. You aren't dealing with your guilt the way God would have you. 
Jesus says uh, before, uh, before he was killed, he, he, he sat his disciples down and washed their feet. And Peter, I love Peter, so moved by, by the experience, he said, Lord, don't just wash my feet. Can you wash my, my hands, my face, my whole body as well? And Jesus says to Peter, he says, look, Peter, I love you. You're already clean. You don't need to, to wash your body, but just wash your feet. You need to keep washing your feet. If you're a Christian, you don't need to confess your sin to make you clean. You're already clean before God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. But we confess our sins because daily in the walk of the Christian life, we get our feet dirty. In fact, not just dirty, filthy, disgusting. A few years ago, I got invited, it's sort of a spontaneous thing, to a pretty wealthy family's house up in the mountains, and you know, this holiday house, and I wasn't planning on going there, and I've been kind of walking around the day in my, my, my thongs, and so my feet were, were pretty disgusting, we'd had some kind of quite a lot of rain, and um, the owner of the mansion, uh, the owner of the mansion, he, you know, he sees me kind of walk in with my thongs and looks at my feet, he says, no, no, you can't come in. He literally gets out a hose and kind of starts washing my feet before I can come in. Now, it's not because I wasn't worthy as a person to come in, but actually there was an issue. If we're going to have a, a proper relationship, if I'm going to kind of walk across his marble tiles, we're going to have to sort of do a bit of business there. Now, sin, it doesn't mean that we can't come to God. In fact, the opposite, sin, sin means that we need God. And God is begging you, he's urging you that that's the time you need, you need to come near to him. Guilt, can often, guilt itself can often be a grace, a reminder that we can't do it all ourselves. Remind that we've stuffed up, that we need Him. But there's this ongoing cleansing that, that's part of our relationship with Him. In Jesus, the penalty, the power of sin has been paid for, but the presence of sin is still there. It's still with us. Now, God already knows that you've been mean, that you've been jealous, that you've been resentful or hateful or, or gossiped or looked at the website that you shouldn't have or, or been a little bit creative on your tax or, or tweaked some details of a story to make yourself look better or maybe eaten too much or lied to your parents. Whatever it is, God already knows. And there's an incredible freedom that when we go to God with confession, uh, He already knows. Have a look. We can go to Him based on His character and have a look again at verse 1, we can trust him because David says, Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love and abundant mercy. See, unlike anyone else we, we experience, God has this, this vast vat of, of, of abundant mercy, steadfast love. God loves more than we can even imagine. Confession. It restores us vertically, initially makes us right with Him, but as an ongoing way, it's how we live out our relationship with Him. Secondly, and I'll move through much quicker now, confession, it restores us inwardly. You know, when my, my four-year-old, she realizes that she's done something wrong, you can see this moment of guilt. She just bursts into tears. Guilt. It has the power to, to dominate us, to ruin our day, our week, even our year. We can feel broken, awful, tiny, wanting to, to crawl up into a little ball and hide. Now, this psalm, it's not apologetic about those feelings. It's not trying to diminish those feelings, uh, nor does it offer us a quick fix. As we read this psalm, we see the sin and guilt of a broken man. We enter into his thought life, into David's heart. Read with me Psalm 51, verse 8. 
to 10. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. In this darkness, in this gloom, David wants to hear joy. He's crushed. He says his bones have been broken by God, in fact. And he's not talking literally, but spiritually. Spiritually, he's been crushed by the weight of his sin and his guilt. You know, sometimes God knocks us down to our knees so that we're forced to pray. Confession, it restores us inwardly because it gives us joy. Now, it's important to understand joy. Joy is different to happiness. It's different to pleasure. Joy is this deep satisfaction of knowing even how bad things are, even how much we've stuffed up. We are loved and secure in God. That's why David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. What a wonderful prayer to pray in the midst of our confession. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, God. God has already granted us this salvation, but just give me that joy. Let me, let me taste and experience and be reminded of that. You know, so often we, we get forgetful. It's like how James, the brother of Jesus, says that we, it's like we look in the mirror and forget what we look like. We're forgetful of who we are. Because of Jesus, we're clean. We're safe. We're secure. We're valued, loved, chosen, adopted into his family. Our friends with God will feast at his table. We will live forever. Paul says in Ephesians 1, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. How good's that? And nothing, nothing can take that away from us. No evil act committed to us or by us can ever take away that secure blessing that we've already been received in Christ. One of my, my favorite movies of all time is Batman Begins. I think even I'd say even it's better than Dark Knight. That's controversial, I know. I, know. I love, love Heath Ledger and the work he did at Joker. But Batman Begins, just love the backstory, love the origin. There's a, a famous quote uh, that, that Rachel says uh, to Bruce Wayne before she realizes who Batman is. And he says, she says, it's not who you are underneath, but what we do that defines us. It's not who you are underneath, but we do that defines us. Now, there's, there's some wisdom in that. There, there's some real truth in that. Often actions that they really do speak louder than words, but it, that doesn't tell the story of the Christian life. What we do, our sin, yes, it, it can be catastrophic. There can be serious consequences and effects and damages of our sin, and yes, they can be painful. But the hope that we have is that even in spite of all this, God loves us, and our sin, our guilt, it doesn't define us. God has defined who you are. You are made fearfully, wonderfully in his image. You're, you're in, in Jesus, chosen, adopted. You're his children. When God sees you, if you trust in him, he doesn't see your record of wrongs, but he sees Jesus. He sees his son. And when we confess our sins to God, we're doing it in such a different context to confessing it to others. You know, a couple of a couple of years ago, I took my, my most expensive trip to the Redlands ever, and I was, I was driving back, and uh, there was uh, what I thought was a two-way street. Uh, I, th I thought, uh, sorry, a one-way street. I thought uh, like the, the road had divided, and there was two lanes. There was a guy who had to get slow. I thought, oh, great, I'll, I'll go around him. Turns out it wasn't a one-way street. It was a two-way street, and this kind of car comes, this VW comes, and kind of I sideswipe him. It's totally my fault. 
have this car accident, have this prank. Whew, I, feel, I feel rubbish, I feel awful. And one of the things that's going through my mind is, man, I'm going to have to tell Sarah. How am I going to tell Sarah? Now, Sarah's amazing. Like, I love Sarah, and I know, I know her character, and I know how gracious and kind and forgiving and understanding of my sin and patient she is with me. And yet I'm still fearing that phone call. I'm still fearing, how is she going to respond? This is going to be, you know, like, this is going to be expensive, annoying. Like, this is such a, a bonehead move from me. You know, there's no hiding from her. And yet, she was incredible. She was gracious towards me. But when we go to God and confess, like, we don't have to speculate how he's going to respond. We go to God according to his steadfast love and mercy. God's mercy has no limit. Here in Psalm 51, we see David be an absolute tool, and yet he can have confidence because of God's character, his mercy. Only by the mercy and grace of God was David allowed to keep going as king. Now, now this should sort of make us feel pretty uncomfortable. This is a big deal, what David has done, and yet he's restored as king. That seems unfair. Yes, it is unfair. That's God's grace. And church, we too are unworthy. We too are just like him. Maybe our sin looks different, but all sin is deserving of death. But the good news is that Jesus, his guilt, our guilt has already been paid for by him. Jesus stood in our place. The perfectly innocent one exchanged his life for us. This is our source of joy. This is the antidote to guilt. You know, Satan, he wants us to, to wallow around in our, in our guilt, kind of feel this self-pity and shame and let that define us. But no, you know, we can't do anything to, to add to, Je- to Jesus' sacrifice. It, it's already been done. And that's why you know, David says uh, in verse 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'll give it. You'll not be pleased with a burnt offering. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. It's already been paid. We can't just sacrifice stuff to, to kind of make us more right with God. We can't do religious works, kind of rock up the church, give more. These things, they don't, they don't make us more right with God. It's already been done. David says in verse 11, he says, Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. You know, David asked that this whole, the Holy Spirit, the, the personal presence of God, wouldn't be taken from him. David's living in a different era to us. Before Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit, he, he would sometimes come and go and move for particular seasons. Uh, but for us, uh, the promise is different. For us, because of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is a permanent fixture in our hearts. Our hearts are sealed by the Spirit. He is always with us. That's we know. We are being restored. God, through His Spirit, is regenerating us, restoring us even with ourselves. Theologian Frederick Buchner says this, that to confess your sins to God is not to tell God anything God doesn't already know, but when you, until you confess them, however, they are the abyss between you. When you confess them, they become the bridge. So confessing our sins out loud even, it's more than just therapeutic. It actually restores our our walk and heals us. John says in 1 John 8, 
uh, 1 John 1 verse 8, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession, it, it restores us vertically with God, restores us inwardly to us with ourselves. And finally, confession restores us horizontally with each other. Now, if we lived on an island uh, by ourselves uh, and we didn't see people, would we ever feel guilty? Would we ever feel guilt? Guilt, it's often brought upon by others, isn't it? And, and there's a grace to that, um, like the, the pain you, you feel when you touch a hot stove. Like, there's a great, that's a gift. Uh, it's your body sign that, that, that something's wrong, that you don't, don't keep doing that. Guilt, it can humble us. It can sober us, bring us back to God. But guilt that leads to confession, that has power. Power to restore us in community. Check out verse 12. Uh, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold with me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. We see David's prayer. His his prayer is to restore his vertical relationship uh, with God. But then he doesn't leave it at that. Uh, His goal, his hope, his prayer is to actually bring others in, uh, to have this horizontal reconciliation so that others would come and return to God. But until David confesses, until David as a leader kind of does business with God, he, he, he's ineffective. You know, it's sort of like you're on a plane and you know, the oxygen mask announcement. You know, make sure you're, you're breathing yourself before you help others. You know, unless we're breathing well, unless we're, our relationship with God is healthy, and it doesn't mean we're, we're kind of perfectly holy and not sinning. No, no. Unless we're going back to God, realizing our need for a Savior, like what use are we to others? You know, we're denying the gospel if we pretend we don't need to confess. Now, when there's sin in our life that we haven't dealt with, it actually affects our relationship with others. Now, sometimes the sin is directly impacting because we sin against others. We have as a church, and we will continue uh, because we're, we're human, we're sinful, this is our nature, we'll continue to step on each other's toes. I think overall, we do have an incredible community here at Sydney Hill, but I know it's not perfect. Uh, in fact, this week, I, I got the privilege of praying with some people that uh, recognized that there was a brokenness between them and someone else. There was a bit of relational conflict, tension that needed to be dealt with. And they wanted to give it to God and work through it. Like, that's the posture we need to have. Like, there will be. I know there is tension sometimes between us. We don't just kind of spit the dummy, walk away. Like, we deal with it because we've got a God who has dealt first and foremost with our tension. And God has actually brought us back to each other. We're brothers and sisters because of Jesus. So what do we do? We, we confess firstly before God, but also we confess to each other. James, uh, in fi- James 5.16 says this, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. There's a beautiful healing that comes from confessing our sins, not just individually uh, between us and God, but with each other, to each other. Some of the best nights that I've had in, in gospel communities is when we've you know, split up into smaller groups, gospel crews we call them, and a bunch of guys, and, and we're just confessing, uh, sharing the, the real stuff that's going on in our life. 
You know, sometimes it's an apology, like we've actually offended uh, one another. But, but more often than that, it's, it's us being real and calling out our own sin in our lives in concrete terms. Things like, I was a jerk to my wife last night. I raised, too much, I raised my voice too much and, and tried to get her to listen to me that way. I went on this website I shouldn't have. I drank too much at that work party. I have inappropriate feelings for a colleague. I haven't read my Bible for weeks. Now, I don't want to pretend that confessing our sins to others is is something natural and just automatic or easy. But at the same time, knowing the gospel, if you're a Christian and you believe that you've been rescued from hell and judgment into God's gracious, unchanging, safe relationship, you're a child of Him. If we truly believe that, I think confessing to others is very achievable. As As I invite the band up, I'm going to give you a quote from... Uh, from German pastor, theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he says this, A man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God in the reality of the other person. As long as I'm by myself in the confession of my sins, everything remains in the clear. But in the presence of a brother, the sin has been brought into the light. Let's not live in darkness. Let's bring our sin into the light. We're all sinners around this room. No one here is perfect. How do you go, church, at confessing your sins to your Lord? How do you go at confessing your sins to your brothers and sisters, to your spouse? When you know, your gospel community is split up for, for, for crews to pray, is there a culture there of genuine confession? Maybe there isn't. Maybe this year you could be the initiator of that. Set that gospel culture. You know, regularly on Sunday, and Zach gave us some space to do it before, we, we, we have a corporate sin of confession. Now, we don't kind of get everyone to kind of stand up and sort of confess our sins out loud. We'd, we'd be here all day, all week. Uh, and we're never going to do that, church, so just take a deep breath. But there is something powerful and restorative, of even in small groups or even with one other person, reminding each other of our sin and, and then our need for a saviour. You know, we've all got issues. We are all a mess, but we are a redeemed mess. And we've got the God of the universe who's spoken to us through his word, who's picking up our broken pieces and redeeming and restoring us. This is the God we pray to. Let's be a church that confesses our sin, knowing who God is, what he has done, and how much he loves you. Let's pray. And as I pray, I'm going to do the same thing that Zach did. I'm going to create a little bit of space uh, just to confess Again, just quietly, just in your hearts, to the Lord about some specific sin, perhaps that, that, that's happened this week, this month, this year, even uh, maybe years ago. Uh, also, um, after I pray, uh, we're going to have a chance to sing. Uh, and during the, these songs, myself uh, and Andrew, who read the Bible, his wife Heather, they'll be in the middle. To, to, they'll have to pray with you. Now, this isn't, we're talking about confession. This isn't like a walk of shame. You need to kind of confess your deepest, darkest secrets. Maybe you just want to give thanks to God. Maybe there's something else unrelated going on in your life that you want to pray with someone. Love to uh, create space for us to do that now. But church, let's pray. Let's stand and pray. Lord, have mercy on us according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out our transgressions. 
wash us thoroughly from our iniquity, cleanse us from our sin. We pause now to reflect on our sin and we bring our sin before you silently in our hearts. Lord, your word says that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For those of us who are feeling crushed with guilt, would you restore us? Give us confidence as your children. May we be a community that takes sin seriously, but basks in the bounty of your grace. Help us this year to confess our sin to you first and foremost, but also to each other. I pray that we can be a safe, loving, gracious community that recognizes that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And thank you, Jesus, that you are our Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. All of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.